0: This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Joanna, Caleb F., Julian, Sam VR, and Josiah. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Joanna, who asks, Who are the Lords in Psalm 110, verse 1? Well, Joanna, the text of Psalm 110 begins this way. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The word Lord is used twice, but to refer to different persons. So the question is, who is the Lord who speaks and who is my Lord who is spoken to? Now, whenever you want to interpret a passage in the Bible, the first question to ask yourself is this, how do other places in scripture interpret this passage? Now, this verse is quoted several times in the New Testament. You'll find it in Matthew 22, verse 44, in Mark 12, 36, in Luke 20, 42, and 43, again in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, and then again in Hebrews 1, verse 11. It's also referred to in Hebrews 10, 13 as well. Now, if you look up these verses, and you should, you'll see that Jesus interprets Psalm 110, verse 1 this way The Lord who speaks is the Father. And the one he speaks to, who David calls my Lord, is the Messiah. Now, the Pharisees know that the Messiah is supposed to be the Son of David, but Jesus uses this verse to show them the Son of David is also the Lord of David. In other words, the Messiah will also be the divine Son of God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost that Jesus is the Messiah, now seated at the right hand of the Father, as Psalm 110 says. In Hebrews 1, the author uses the same verse to show that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then again, in Hebrews 10, he writes that after the cross, Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for him. So, as you see, Scripture interprets Scripture for us and explains the meaning of Psalm 110. The Father is promising Christ the Son that he will triumph and reign as King. And now Caleb F. asks, When the Pharisees called Jesus teacher, were they trying to flatter him? Caleb Possibly so, but I think there was another reason. The title teacher or rabbi was a term of respect. Now based on some of the questions, it's obvious that at least some of the Pharisees had no respect for Jesus at all. But here's the thing, the people did. And the Pharisees were conscious of the opinion of the people. The whole reason that they couldn't act against Jesus for so long was their fear of the way people would react. That's why they always tried to trap Jesus. They wanted him to say or do things that the people wouldn't like so that he would lose his popularity with the people and they could arrest him without consequences. Now, maybe they also wanted to flatter him thinking that it would give them an advantage, but I think on the whole they felt like they had to show respect or they would become unpopular with the people. Jesus, of course, never did anything to court popularity. He cared about the truth and nothing but the truth. And now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Julian. Let's give Julian a round of applause. Here's Julian's question. What shouldn't you say when trying to bring a non-believer to Jesus? Julian, I think this is a very smart question. Most of the time we focus on what we should say or do, and there's a place for that. But it can be really helpful to think about what you shouldn't do and to learn from that. In fact... A professor of mine once taught me that you can learn as much from a bad example as you can from a good example. The good example obviously shows you what to do, but the bad example shows you what mistakes to avoid. And obviously, when it comes to sharing God's grace with other people, we want to avoid any mistakes that could get in the way. So I'm going to give you some practical advice on what to avoid. But after I've done that, I want to give you a little bit of encouragement about why you shouldn't worry too much about saying the wrong thing. Practically speaking, the biggest mistake to avoid is sharing grace without showing grace. What you say and what you do should reflect your message, not contradict it. That's not the same as just being nice, though. Obviously, Jesus challenged people. Jesus said some hard things. But Jesus spoke with absolute sincerity. You might say he embodied the good news that he proclaimed. And you, to the best of your ability, should follow his example. Another mistake to avoid is making it sound like God's forgiveness is earned through good behavior. Look, you can't really explain someone's need for grace without talking about their sin. But you have to remember that people already have a wrong impression of the gospel. And if you're not careful, they won't really hear what you're saying. They think Christians are telling them to stop sinning and be good people so that God will forgive them. They think your message is, be a good person like me, and then God will love you like he loves me. That's how religions typically work, but that's not the gospel. Instead, in the gospel, forgiveness comes first. There's another mistake to avoid. You might think of this as the opposite of the last one. Here it is. Don't give the impression that God doesn't really care about sin. Sometimes you hear people talk about the gospel in a way that makes it sound like there's no need for repentance at all. They use words like love and grace, but it sounds like what they're saying is, just keep doing what you're doing, it's no big deal, God is thrilled with you. The problem is, if you minimize the reality of sin, you also minimize the need for Christ's work on the cross. I'm going to pause there, but we could just keep going and going. The reality is, when you're talking to flawed and sinful human beings, literally everything you say can be misinterpreted and can feel like a mistake, no matter how careful you are. And that's frustrating. But once you realize this truth, it can also help you because we have a tendency to think that whether or not our friends come to Jesus depends on us. If we say the right things and avoid making any mistakes, then they'll listen. But if we get it wrong, if we trip ourselves up, if we're not clear enough or persuasive enough, if we're not gracious enough or we don't emphasize sin enough, then they won't believe. But here's the reality. Sharing grace with other people is a work of the Holy Spirit we can share grace with hope not because we say all the right things and none of the wrong ones, but because we trust God to use what we say to reveal himself. I've seen people reject the gospel even though it was explained to them about as perfectly as I can imagine it happening. And I've also seen people's eyes opened by attempts that frankly weren't all that good. Because we believe that faith is a gift from God and that the Spirit awakens people to the truth, We don't have to be consumed with anxiety about getting the words exactly right. Now obviously, in everything we do, we want to be good stewards and not presume on God. So we try our best. We study to improve. But at the end of the day, our confidence is not in our own efforts, but in the Holy Spirit. Knowing that should help you avoid making the biggest mistake of all, which is this not sharing grace because you're afraid of getting it wrong. Don't let fear of making mistakes keep you from sharing the good news of Christ's grace. Just trust that when you make mistakes, the Spirit will make them right. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Sam VR, who wants to know, if Adam killed the serpent, would that be a sin? Well, Sam, this is a fantastic question, and I have to admit, I've never even asked myself this question before. But thinking about it out loud, I guess technically, the way Genesis frames the narrative in the garden, the one thing you must not do is eat from the tree. It never says anywhere, don't eat of the tree, and if a serpent comes along and tells you otherwise, don't kill him. So maybe Adam could have crushed the serpent's head right there and been blameless. But on the other hand, knowing that God forbids unlawful killing and is going to make that clear in time, maybe the right thing to do in that situation would have been to resist temptation and report the serpent's activities to God for appropriate punishment. I'm not quite sure. I have to say, though, of all the hypothetical scenarios that you guys have thrown at me, and after 90 episodes, you've thrown a lot of them, this is one of the most fascinating. And now Josiah asks, In the Confession of Faith, why is the Amen bold? Well, Josiah, whenever you're in a worship service at Grace and you see something in boldface type in the order of worship, that's because you're meant to say it out loud. When we worship, we aren't just spectators, we're participants, and one of the ways we participate is by speaking out loud. By the way, when you see that word, A-M-E-N, the way to pronounce it is Amen. You'll often hear people say amen, which is common in American English, but amen is closer to the right sound, so give it a try. And whenever you see a response in boldface, say it out loud so everyone can hear you. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.